6. E they dug a grave in a small, and used cement or a plat where only the old, rich men of the Pueblo were buried. A group of 25 old women gathered standing at the front of the house swaying to the right, to the left, as they slowly droned in melancholy cadence, you were old, and old people die, you are dead, and now we shall place you in the earth, we too are old, and soon we shall follow you. Again and again they droned, and when they ceased others within the house took up the strain. During the singing the carabao head was brought from the house, and the horns, with small section of attached skull, chopped out, and the head returned to the ceiling of the dwelling. Presently a man came with a slender stick to measure the coffin. He drove a nursing mother, with a woman companion and small child, from comfortable seats on the upturned wood. The people, including the group of old women, were driven away from the front of the house. The coffin was laid down on the ground before the door, and in an opened eight-gallon olio of preserved meat was set at its foot. An old woman, in no way distinguishable from the others by paraphernalia or other marks, muttering, squatted beside the olio. Two men untied the bands from the corpse, and one lifted it free from the chair and carried it in his arms to the coffin. It was most unsightly, and streams of rusty brown liquid ran from it. It was placed face up, head elevated even with the rim, and legs bent close at the knees but only slightly at the hips. The old woman arose from beside the olia and helped lay two new breechcloths and a blanket over the body. The face was left uncovered, except that a small patch of white cloth ravelings, called afoote, was laid over the eyes, and a small white cloth was laid over the hair of the head. The burden was quickly caught up on men's shoulders and hurried without halting to the grave. Willing bands swarmed about the coffin, at all times as many men helped bear it as could well get hold and when they mounted the face of a seven-foot cement or a wall a dozen strong pairs of hands found service drawing up and supporting the burden. Many men followed from the house when brought the coffin cover and another the carabao horns but the women and children remained behind, as is their custom at burials. At the grave the coffin rested on the earth a moment while a few more basketfuls of dirt were thrown out, until the grave was about five feet deep. The coffin was then placed in the grave, the cover laid on and with a joke and a laugh the pair of horns was placed facing it at the head. Instantly thirty-two men sprang on the piles of fresh, loose dirt, and with their hands and the half-dozen digging sticks filled and covered the grave in the shortest possible time, probably not over one minute and a half, and away they hurried, most of them at a dog trot, to wash themselves in the river. From the instant the corpse was in the coffin until the grave was filled all things were done in the greatest haste because calling crows must not fly over, dogs must not bark, snakes or rats must not cross the trail if they should, some dire evil would follow, shortly after the burial a ceremony, called Kapiyan Asinatiu, is performed by the relatives in the dwelling wherein the corpse sat, it is said to be the last ceremony given for the dead, food is eaten and the one in charge addresses the Anito of the dead man as follows, we have fixed all things right and well for you, when there was no rice or chicken for food, we got them for you as was the custom of our fathers so you will not come to make us sick. If another Anito seeks to harm us, you will protect us. When we make a feast and ask you to come to it, we want you to do so, but if another Anito kills all your relatives, there will be no more houses for you to enter for feasts. This last argument is considered to be a very important one, as all Idra are fond of feasting and it is assumed that the Anito has the same desire. The night following the burial all relatives stay at the house lately occupied by the corpse, 
On the day after the burial all the men relatives go to the river and catch fish. The small kiko. The relatives have a fish feast. Called ABFON. At the hour of the evening meal. To this feast all ancestral Anita were invited. All relatives again spend the night at the house. From which they return to their own dwellings after breakfast of the second day and each goes laden with a plate of cooked rice. In this way from two to eight days are given to the funeral rite. The duration being greater with the wealthier people. Only heads of families are buried in the large pine coffins, which are kept ready stored beside the granaries everywhere about the Pueblo. As in the case of some cob, all old, rich men are buried in a plat of ground close to the last fringe of dwellings on the west of the Pueblo. But all other persons except those who lose their heads are buried close to their dwellings in the commote cementers. The burial clothes of a married man are the Los Aden, or Blue Anito figured burial robe, and a breech cloth of beaten bark called Kainangta. In the coffin are placed a thigh or blue cotton breechcloth made in Titipan, the Fanchalo, a striped blue and white cotton blanket, and the Tichong, a foot square piece of beaten bark or white cloth which is laid on the head. A married woman is buried in a kain, a particular skirt made for burial in Titipan, and a white blue bordered waist cloth or lama. In the coffin are placed a burial girdle, Wakis, also made in Titipan. A blue and white striped blanket called Bayang, and the Tichong, the small cloth or bark over the hair. The unmarried are buried in graves near the dwelling, and these are walled up the sides and covered with rocks and lastly with earth. It is the old rock cairn instead of the wooden coffin. The bodies are placed flat on their backs with knees bent and heels drawn up to the buttocks. With the men are buried, besides the things interred with the married men, the basket work hep, the basket work sleeping hep, the spear the battle axe, and the earrings if any are possessed, these additional things are buried, they say, because there is no family with which to leave them, though all things interred are for the use of the Anito of the dead, in addition to the various things buried with the married woman, the unmarried has a sleeping hep, babes and children up to six or seven years of age are buried in the cementer wrapped in a crude beaten bark mantle, this garment is folded and wrapped about the body, and for babes, at least, is bound and tied close about them. Babies are buried close to the dwelling where the sun and storm do not beat, because, as they say, babes are too tender to receive harsh treatment. For those beheaded in battle there is another burial, which is described in a later chapter. Part for economic life production under the title Economic Life are considered the various activities which a political economist would consider if he studied a modern community in so far as they occur in Bantuk. This method was chosen not to make the Bantakidro appear a modern man but that the student may see as plainly as method will allow on what economic plane the Bantak man lives. The desire for this clear view is prompted by the belief that grades of culture of primitive peoples may be determined by the economic standard better than by any other single standard. Natural production it would be impossible for the Bantakidro at present to subsist themselves two weeks by natural production. It is doubtful whether at any time they could have depended for even as much as a day in a week on the natural foods of the Bantak culture area. The country has wild carabaos, deer, hogs, chickens, and three animals which the Igro calls cats. But all of these, when considered as a food supply for the people, are relatively scarce, and it is thought they were never much more abundant than now. Fish are not plentiful, and judging from the available waters there are probably as many now as formerly. It is believed that no nut foods are eaten in Bantak. Although an acorn is found in the mountains to the south of Bantak Pueblo, 
The banana and pineapple now grow wild within the area, but they are not abundant. Of small berries, such as are so abundant in the wild lands of the United States, there are almost none in the area. On the outside, near Swack of Lepanto, there is a huckleberry found so plentifully that they claim it is gathered for food in its season. Hunting a large pile of rocks stands like a compact fortress on the mountain horizon to the north of Bontoc Pueblo. Here a ceremony is observed twice annually by rich men for the increase of Iyawan, the wild carabao. It is claimed that there are now 17 wild carabaos in Makayalan Mountain near the Pueblo. There are others in the mountains farther to the north and east, and the ceremony has among its objects that of inducing these more distant herds to migrate to the public lands surrounding the Pueblo. The men go to the Great Rock, which is said to be a transformed Inito, and there they build a fire, eat a meal, and have the ceremony called Mangapuyasiyawan, freely, fire feast for wild carabaos. The ceremony is as follows, Iyawan Adsaka Paulikaya is Nama and Mung is now, Iyawan Adoki Kiolikaya is Nama and Mung is now, Thacha Miles Yahi Nanapuyayapate. This is an invitation addressed to the wild Karabatos of the Sakapa and Okiki Mountains to come in closer to Bantuk. They are also asked to note that a fire feast is made in their honor. The old men say that probably 500 wild Karabatos have been killed by the men of the Pueblo. There is a tradition that Lumawig instructed the people to kill wild Karabatos for marriage feasts, and all of those killed of which there is memory or tradition have been used in the marriage feasts of the rich. The wild Karabato is extremely vicious and is killed only when 40 or 50 men combine and hunt it with spears. When wounded it charges any man in sight, and the hunter's only safety is in a tree. The method of hunting is simple. The herd is located, and as cautiously as possible the hunters conceal themselves behind the trees near the runway and throw their spears as the desired animal passes. No wild carabatos have been killed during the past two years, but I am told that the numbers killed three, four, six, seven and eight years ago were, respectively, five, eight, seven, ten, and eight, seven men in Bontoc have dogs trained to run deer and wild boar, one of the men, Ali Wong, has a pack of five dogs, the others have one or two each, the hunting dogs are small and only moderately fleet, but they are said to have great courage and endurance, they hunt out of leash, and still hunt until they start their prey, when they cry continually, thus directing the hunter to the runway or the place where the victim is at bay. Not more than one deer, Agasse, is killed annually, and they claim that deer were always very scarce in the area. A large net some 3-1-2 feet high and often 50 feet long is commonly employed in northern Luzon and through the archipelago for netting deer and hogs, but no such net is used in Bontoc. The dogs follow the deer, and the hunter spears it in the runway as it passes him or while held at bay. The wild hog, Laman or Fango when hunted with dogs is a surly fighter and prefers to take its chances at bay, consequently it is more often killed than by the spearman than in the runway. The wild hog is also often caught in pitfalls dug in the runways or in its feeding grounds. The pitfall, FI2, is from 3 to 4 feet across, about 4 feet deep, and is covered over with dry grass. In the forest feeding grounds of Polis Mountains, between the Bantok culture area and the Banai area to the south. These pitfalls are very abundant, there frequently being two or three within a space one rod square. A deadfall, called Il Tib, is built for hogs near the cementers in the mountains. These deadfalls are quite common throughout the Bantok area, 
and probably capture more hogs than the pitfall and the hunter combined. The hogs are partial to growing pollery and commodes, and at night circle about a protecting fence anxious to take advantage of any chance opening. Beedrill leaves an opening in a low fence built especially for that purpose, as he does not commonly fence in the cementers. Bil Tib is built of two sections of heavy tree trunks, one embedded in the earth, level with the ground, and the other the falling timber. As the hog enters the cementera, the weight of his body springs the trigger which is covered in the loose dirt before the opening, and the falling timber pins him fast against the lower timber firmly buried in the earth. From half a dozen to twenty wild hogs are annually killed by the people of the Pueblo. They are said to be as plentiful as formerly. Bontoc Pueblo does not catch many wild fowls. Fowl catching is an art she never learned to follow. Although two or three of her boys annually catch half a dozen chickens each. The surrounding Pueblos, as Tukukan, Salkasalkan, Mayanit, and Maligkong, secure every year in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 fowl each. B.S.A. Thug, or wild cock, is most commonly caught in a snare, called Shi'i, to which it is lured by another cock, a domestic one, or often a half-breed or a wild cock partially domesticated, which is secured inside the snare set up in the mountains near the feeding grounds of the wild fowls. The Shi'i wind set consists of 24 asylutetium, or running loops, attached to a cord forming three sides of an open square space. As the snare is set the open side is placed against a rock or steep base of a rise. The Shi'i is made of braided bijuco, and when not in use, is compactly packed away in a basket for the purpose see place exilidi. There are also five pegs fitted into loops in the basket, four of which are employed in pegging out the three sides of the snare and the other for securing the lure cock within the square. Only cocks are caught with the Shi'i, and they come to fight the intruder who guides them to the snare by crowing his challenge. As the wild cock rushes at the other he is caught by one of the loops closing about him. The hunter, always hiding within a few feet of the snare, rushes upon the captive, and at once resets his snare for another possible victim. A spring snare, called Cocko Lang, is employed by the Idril in catching both wild cocks and hens. It is set in their narrow runways in the heavy undergrowth. It consists of two short uprights driven into the ground one on either side of the path. These are bound together at the tops with two cross pieces. Near the lower ends of these uprights is a loose cross piece. The trigger, which the fowl in passing knocks down, thus freeing the short upright. Mark C in figure 1. When this is freed the loop, he at once tightens around the victim. As the cord is drawn taut by the releasing of the spring a shrub bent over and secured by the upper end of the cord. This spring is not shown in the drawing. Figure 1 Figure 1. Spring snare. Coco length. A coco length. B-I-N-C-T-N-A. D-C-H-I-D-C-H-I. B-L-O-F-I-D. Bontoc has two or three quadrupeds which it names cats. One of these is a true cat. Called in Yao. It is domesticated by the Ilocano in Bontoc and becomes a good mouser. The Coco Lang is used to catch this cat. Place XLVI shows with what success this spring snare may be employed. The cat shown was caught in the night while trying to enter a chicken coop. He was a wild in Yao. Was beautifully striped like the American tiger cat. And measured 35 inches from tip to tip. The in Yao is plentiful in the mountains. And is greatly relished by the Idro. Though Bontoc has no professional cat hunters and probably not a dozen of the animals are captured annually. Beedro claimed to have two other cats, one called Company Lang, as large as in Yao, with large legs and very large feet. A Spaniard living near Sagada says this animal eats his coffee berries. 
The other so-called cat is named Asile by the Idro. It is said to be a long-tailed, dark-colored animal, smaller than the Inyao. It is claimed that this Asile is both carnivorous and frugivorous. These two animals are trapped at times, and when caught are eaten. During the year the boys catch numbers of small birds, all of which are eaten. Probably not over 200 are captured. However, during the year, the lingon, a spring snare, is the most used for catching birds. I saw one of them catch four shrikes, called Tolo, in a single afternoon, and a fifth one was caught early the next morning. Place XLVII shows the lingon as it is set, and also shows Tolo as he is caught. The Kako Lang is also employed successfully for such birds as run on the ground, especially those which run in paths. The Asisim is another spring snare set on the open ground. Food is scattered about leading to it, and is placed abundantly in an enclosure, the entrance to which is through the fatal noose which tightens when the bird perches on the trigger at the opening to the enclosure. When the poly is in the milk a great many birds which feed upon it are captured by means of a broom-like bundle of runo. As the birds fly over the cementer as a boy sweeps his broom, the K.A.Lib, through the flock, and rarely fails to knock down a bird. The K.A.Lib is about 7 feet long, to 1 2 inches in diameter at the base, and flattened and broadened to 14 or 15 inches in width at the outer end. What the K.A.Lib really does for the boy is to give him an arm about 9 feet long and a long open hand a foot and a quarter wide. Fishing the only water available to Bantak Pueblo for fishing purposes is the river passing between it and her sister Pueblo, Samoki. In the dry season, where it is not dammed, the river is not over six and eight rods across in its widest places, and is from a few inches to three feet deep. All the water would readily pass, at the ordinary velocity of the stream, in a channel twenty feet wide and six feet deep. Three methods are employed in fishing in this river the first catching each fish in the hand, the second, driving the fish upstream by fright into a receptacle, a third, a combined process of driving the fish downstream by fright and by water pressure into a receptacle. Beedro seems not to have a general word for fish, but he has names for the three varieties found in the river. 1. K.H.O. A very small, sluggish fish, is captured during the entire year. In February these fish were seldom more than two inches in length and yet they were heavy with spawn. The K.H.O. is the fish most commonly captured with the hands. It is a sluggish swimmer and is provided with an exterior suction valve on its ventral surface immediately back of the gill opening. This valve seems to enable the fish to withstand the ordinary current of the river which, in the rainy season, becomes a torrent. This valve is also one of the causes of the Idro's success in capturing the fish, which is not readily frightened but clings to the bed of the stream until almost brushed away, and then ordinarily swims only a few inches or feet. Small boys from 6 to 10 years old capture by hand a hundred or more K.H.O. during half a day, simply by following them in the shallow water. The K.H.O. is also caught in great numbers by the second or driving method. 20 to 40 or more men fish together with a large, closely woven, shovel-like trap called K.O.U.G., and the operation is most interesting to witness. At the river beach the fishermen remove all clothing, and stretch out on their faces in the warm, sun-heated sand. Three men carry the trap to the middle of the swift stream, and one holds it from floating away below him by grasping the side poles which project at the upper end for that purpose. The two other men, below the trap at its mouth, put large stones on their backs between the shoulder blades, so they will not float downstream, and disappear beneath the water. 
as quickly as possible, coming up a dozen times to breathe during the process. They clear away the rocks below the trap, piling them in it over its floor, until it finally sinks and remains stationary on the cleared spot of sandy bed. Their task being ended, the three trap settlers come to shore, and sprawl on the hot sands to warm their dripping skins, while the sun dries and toasts their backs. Then the drivers or beaters enter the river and stretch in a line from shore to shore about 75 feet below the trap. Each fellow squats in the water and places a heavy stone on his back. One of the men calls, and the row of strange, humpbacked creatures disappears beneath the water. There the men work swiftly, and, as later appears, successfully, each turns over all the boulders within his reach as large or larger than his two fists, and he works upstream four to six feet. They come up blowing, at first ahead here and there, but soon all are up with renewed breath, waiting the next call to beat up the prey. This process is repeated again and again, and each time the outer ends of the line bend upstream, gradually looping in toward the trap. When the line of men has become quite circular and is contracting rapidly, a dozen other men enter the river from the shore and line up on each side of the mouth of the trap. A flank movement to prevent the fish running upstream outside the snare. From the circle of beaters a few now drop out, the others are in a bunch. The last stone is turned, and the prey seeks covered under the rocks in the trap, which the flankers at once lift above the water. The rocks are thrown out and the trap and fish carried to the shore. In each drive they catch about three quarts of fish. These are dumped into baskets, usually the carrying basket of the man, and when the day's catch is made and divided each man receives an equal share, usually about one pound per household. A procession of men and boys coming in from the river, each carrying his share of fish in his basket up in his hand and the last man carrying the fish trap, is a sight very frequently seen in the Pueblo. The KHO is also caught in a small trap, called Obiofu. By the third method mentioned above, a small strip of shallow water along the shore is quite effectually cut off from the remainder of the stream by a row of rocks. The lower end of this strip is brought to a point where the water pours out and into the upturned Obiofu, carrying with it the KHO which happened to be in the swift current. The fish having been startled from their secure resting places by the fishermen who have gradually proceeded downstream over turning the stones, a fish called Leeling, which attains a length of about 6 inches, is also caught by the last described method. It is not nearly so plentiful as the KHO. One man living in Bontot may be called a fisherman. He spends most of his time with his traps in the river, and sells his fish to the Ilocano and Idra residents of the Pueblo. He places large traps in the deep parts of the stream, adjusts them, and revisits them by swimming under the water, and altogether is considered by the Idra boys as quite a water man. He catches each year many Kho and Leeling, and one or more large fish, called Chalit. The Chalit is said to acquire a length of three, four, or five feet. Women and small children wait about the river and pick up quantities of small crabs, called AGKMA, and also a small spiral shell, called KOT. It is safe to say that every hour of a rainless day one or more persons of Bontoc is gathering such food in the river, immediately after the first rain of the season of 1903, coming April 5th. There were 24 persons, women and small children, within 10 rods of one another. Searching the river for AGKMA and KOT, the women wear a small rump basket tied around the waist in which they carry their lunch to the rice cementers, and once or twice each week they bring home from a few ounces to a pound of small crustaceans, 
One variety is named Songan, another is Kitten, a third is Finay and a fourth is List Chug. They are all collected in the mud of the cementers. Vegetal production all materials for timbers and boards for the dwellings, granaries, and public buildings. All wood for fires, all wood for shields, for axe and spear handles, for agricultural implements, and for household utensils. And all material for splints employed in various kinds of basket work. And for strings warp and woof employed in the weaving of bantock girdles and skirts are gathered wild with no effort at cultural production. There are three exceptions to this statement. However, one small shrub, called Piyuyuchi, is planted near the house as a fiber plant, and is no longer known to the Igru in the wild state. Much of the bamboo from which the basket work splints are made is purchased from people west of Bantak. And, lastly, there is no doubt that a certain care is taken in preserving pine trees for large boards and timbers and for coffins, there is a cutting away of dead and small branches from these trees. Moreover, the cutting of other trees and shrubs for firewood certainly has a beneficial effect upon the forest trees left standing. In fact, all persons preserve the small pitch pine trees on private lands, and it is a crime to cut them on another's land. Although a poor man may cut other varieties on private lands when needed, Cultural production agriculture in all of agriculture the most apparent and strikingly noteworthy fact is its agriculture. In agriculture the Igro has reached his highest development. On agriculture hangs his claim to the rank of barbarian without it he would be a savage. Igro agriculture is unique in Luzon, and, so far as known, throughout the archipelago, in its mountain terraces and irrigation, there are three possible explanations of the origin of Philippine rice terraces. First, that they and those of other islands peopled by primitive and modern Malayans, and those of Japan and China are indigenous the product of the mountain lands of each isolated area, second, that most of them are due to cultural influences from one center, or possibly more than one center, to the north of Luzon as influences from China or Japan spreading southward from island to island, third, that they, Especially all those of the islands excluding only China are due to influences originating south of the Philippines, spreading northward from island to island. Terracing may be indigenous to many isolated areas where it is found, and doubtless is to some, it is found more or less marked wherever irrigation is or was practiced in ancient or modern agriculture. However, it is believed not to be an original production of the Philippines. Certain it is that it is not an agreed art nor does it belong to the Mora or to the so-called Christian people. Different sections of China have rice terraces, and as early as the 13th century Chinese merchants traded with the Philippines, yet there is no record that they traded north of Manila where terracing is alone found. Besides, the Chinese record of the early commerce with the islands written by Zhao Jokui about 1250 it is claimed specifically states that the natives of the islands were the merchants taking the goods from the shore and trading them even to other islands, the Chinese did not pass inland. Even though the Chinaman brought phases of his culture to the islands, it would not have been agriculture, since he did not practice it here. Moreover, whatever culture he did leave would not be found in the mountains three or four days inland, while the people with whom he traded were without the art. The same arguments hold against the Japanese as the inspirers of Igro terraces. There is no record that they traded in the islands as early as did the Chinese, and it is safe to say, no matter when they were along the coasts of Luzon, that they never penetrated several days into the mountains, among the wild, head-hunting people, for what the agricultural Igro had to sell, 
The historic cultural movements in Malaysia have been not from the north southward but from Sumatra and Java to the north and east, they have followed the migrations of the people. It is believed that the terrace-building culture of the Asiatic islands for the production of mountain rice by irrigation during the dry season has drawn its inspiration from one source, and that such terraces were found today in Java, Lombok, Luzon, Formosa, and Japan are a survival of very early culture which spread from the nest of the primitive Malayan stock and left its marks along the way doubtless in other islands besides these cited. If Japan, as has Formosa, had an early Malayan culture, as will probably be proved in due time, one should not be surprised to find old rice terraces in the mountains of Baden's Islands and the Luchu Islands which lie between Luzon and Japan. Building the cementer it must be noted here that all Bantak agricultural laborers, from the building of the cementer to the storing of the gathered harvest, are accompanied by religious ceremonials. They are often elaborate, and some occupy a week's time. These ceremonials are left out of this chapter to avoid detail. They appear in the later chapter on religion. There are two varieties of cementerous garden patches, called Peyo in the Bantak area, the irrigated and the unirrigated. The irrigated cementerous grow two crops annually, one of rice by irrigation during the dry season and the other of commodes, sweet potatoes, grown in the rainy season without irrigation. The unirrigated cementer is of two kinds, one is the mountain or side hill plat of earth, in which commodes, millet, beans, maize, etc. are planted, and the other is the horizontal plat probably once an irrigated cementera, usually built with low terraces, sometimes lying in the pueblo among the houses, from which shoots are taken for transplanting in the distant cementeras and where commotes are grown for the pigs, sometimes they are along old water courses which no longer flow during the dry season, such are often employed for rice during the rainy season, the unirrigated mountainside cementera, called FOAG is built by simply clearing the trees and brush from a mountain plat. No effort is made to level it and no dike walls are built. Now and then one is hemmed in by a low boundary wall. The irrigated cementers are built with much care and labor. The earth is first cleared, the soil is carefully removed and placed in a pile, the rocks are dug out, the ground shaped, being excavated and filled until a level results. This task for a man whose only tools are sticks is no slight one. A huge boulder in the ground means hours often days of patient, animal-like digging and prying with hands and sticks before it is finally dislodged. When the ground is leveled the soil is put back over the plat, and very often is supplemented with other rich soil. These irrigated cementers are built along water courses or in such places as, 